Welcome back to the Apostles Mailbox, where today in our pursuit of understanding who Jesus is, as explained by the book of John, we might have to unlearn some things, and we also might take a peek at the Testament of Levi. All right, so by this point, if you're watching on YouTube, you might be wondering what's up with the red jacket. Of course, if you're not watching, if you're only listening to the audio version of this podcast, that question will be nowhere in your mind because you won't be able to see that I am indeed wearing a bright lobster red jacket. Uh, and, and this illustrates, I think, something uh, that is true of us, is that if we cannot see all of the, the surrounding information of a given interaction or dialogue, we might be unaware of something that is, is happening uh, that other people might be clearly aware of. Uh, if and, and even the question that you might ask, what's up with the red jacket, there might be two possible answers with that. There is many. Uh, you might be wondering why I have such a red jacket. Uh, you might also be wondering why I'm wearing said jacket inside on a day like today recording this podcast. And the answer to those different questions would be, you know, very different. Uh, and, and they wouldn't be contradictory to each other, but they're after different information. But you would you would phrase them both the same way. What's up with the red jacket? And so uh, we're talking about this is one of the things about language as we do Bible study. Sometimes I think we get in this trap of of sort of oversimplifying things, and we just say, well, just tell me what it means. And you go, well, what do you mean? Tell me what it means. We have to understand what the people who it was written originally to would have made of it, uh, to understand what the author intended to communicate to them. And also, that of course, there are implications as we say, well, what does that mean for uh, this doctrine or that doctrine, or, or what might be the implications for this text as we consider uh, being faithful disciples of Jesus Christ today. So we're going to get into some of those questions as we go back to the book of John for today's episode, and I hope you'll enjoy uh, the journey with me. So let's begin just by reading the text. So the text in question where we left off last uh, yes, last time was in John 1.28. So we're in John 1.29, and we're told the next day, that is the day after John the Baptist was uh, interrogated about what he was up to. And the, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So we're going to answer some questions about what's going on here and what, what a first century Jew might have made of this gospel, of this uh, retelling of, of significant occurrences in the life of Jesus. Uh, but where I want to get really is to this assumption that one of the things that John points out here is this idea, of course, of Jesus being the Lamb of God, uh, but also the baptizing and the presence of the Holy Spirit, which are going to be significant. Okay, so as we do this, uh, one of the first things that we notice is that John makes the statement about beholding the Lamb of God. And if you're if you've been around for very long in the in the Christian sort of in a Christian community or context, if you've read your Bible very much, you might be immediately having 
come to mind a lot of ideas about lambs taking away sin. And, uh, and you would do this thinking that, of course, because you know it, you might assume that the original audience who heard John say this uh, that day where uh, Jesus was um, still on earth, walking around just beginning his ministry, of course, you might, you might think that John's audience understood the, th the same things as you, but the reality is uh, they wouldn't have. And I, and I want to talk about a few reasons why. So uh, one of the things that we think of when we think of a, a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, is we think of lambs being a sacrifice to pay for sin. And we think, of course, that's what the Jews would have thought. But the reality is, is uh, in the Levitical law, the, the standard sin offering, if you will, wasn't a lamb. It was a bull. And so the, the sin offering was the, the death of a bull. Uh, lambs also were offered, and they did have a place, of course, in the sacrificial system. But the primary sin offering uh, was described as a bull. It wasn't described as a lamb. And so even though we in our heads, because we've never you know, been to the temple and seen a sin sacrifice done, we wouldn't think like, oh, we're going to make a sacrifice for sin. It has to be a bull. Uh, we think, oh, a lamb, right? Because Jesus was the lamb of God. But that's because we're taking later information we have and we're reading it back into that day. And so John the Baptist, when he's talking about this, if, if he wanted to say like, hey, remember the Old Testament where something had to be sacrificed to pay for sin, he might have said, behold, the bull of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he didn't do that. And so uh, when we ask the question, what did John mean? Uh, he maybe didn't mean the same thing that we think when we hear that. Now, you might, there, were, there were other things in, in this uh, Jewish uh, temple sort of uh, rhythm of, of sacrifices and pictures, one of, one of which was a scapegoat. So one of the things that was done is that uh, during one of the Jewish festivals, they would, the priest would lay his hand on the head of a goat and they would send it out of, the, out of, out of Israel, out of the camp. And it was this picture that this goat was carrying with it the sins of Israel out of the camp so that when God came to judge the sin, it wouldn't, that judgment wouldn't fall on the camp. Uh, and so you'd say that, that the goat in some way bore the sins of Israel, but that, that was a goat. That wasn't a lamb. Um, so some of the other things that, that you might think of here is you might think of the Passover lamb. And it's easy for us, of course, on this side of, of the death and resurrection of Jesus to think of Jesus as that perfect Passover lamb. Why? Well, he was sacrificed at the Passover, like he died at the Passover in, in the direct dates uh, that God intended for the Passover to happen. In fact, if you're familiar with it, you'll know that the way the Passover was set up is that a lamb was chosen on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, and then it was sacrificed on the 14th day of Nisan. And uh, not to get too much distracted here, but on Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into uh, Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and he goes into the temple, and that's all he does. Uh, and then he leaves, and you're sort of like, well, what's that all about? Well, there's a lot of things going on there, but one of which, I think, is that this was a sign of God selecting Jesus, if you will, as his Passover lamb and setting him apart. So the Jews would select their lamb on the 10th, they would set it apart from the herd, uh, from the flock, and then they would sacrifice it on the 14th. And so on the 10th of Nisan, which is Sunday, Jesus is selected as the lamb. And then on the 14th of Nisan, he is sacrificed. Uh, and, and if you're counting, that's Thursday. And if you go, well, wait, didn't Jesus die on a, 
on a Friday. Um, actually, that also is a mistake. Uh, that That's not what happened, as, as I believe Scripture is, is clear and explains. Uh, but because we're not familiar with the Jewish sacrificial law, and all we have in our head is traditions passed down by the church, and because at some point the church started traditionally uh, teaching that Jesus was sacrificed on Friday and that he was killed on Friday. Uh, we carry that with us, even though that's not consistent with the the example of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb uh, going back to the Exodus and also with the biblical witness. So uh, that's a bit of a, of a rabbit trail, and maybe someday I'll explain exactly how that works uh, in, in the texts that we see in the Gospels, but that's not our goal today. The point that I'm trying to make is that we have these ideas, and we carry them back, and, and we read this account of, of John the Baptist, who's there, and he's talking about things to people who are there in that day, and they don't know Jesus is going to die. And John the Baptist probably doesn't know that Jesus is going to die on Passover. Uh, in fact, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, or sorry, in Luke chapter 7, uh, John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to Jesus to like try to figure out what's going on because things are not proceeding as, as he sort of expects them to. Uh, and, and so there's you know, John is not like, John the Baptist is not this omniscient guy who's telling everybody what's happening. He's just saying what God has revealed to them. And, and so I bring this up because when we see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we have all of these pictures. And what most of us don't think of is we don't think of a, of a foretold conquering Lamb uh, who conquers his enemies. Um, and, and, it's possible, it's possible, and entirely possible, and some commentators that I read take this, this idea with them that what John was referring to is some of these prophecies of a conquering lamb. And the difficulty, of course, is that these ideas about a lamb who would conquer, uh, they show up in Revelation 5 and 17, but Revelation 5 and 17 hadn't been written yet, right? They were written decades later, uh, That the, the book of Revelation was written decades later, and so John the Baptist obviously wouldn't be thinking about the book of Revelation at this point, but he did have other texts. And so in, in this time period, you had, you had Jews who had other religious texts, and they had things floating around that they were familiar with, uh, things that we would call, uh, that we, would, we treat as, as non-canonical. They're not canonized in the Bible. They're not accepted as scripture with the rest of our Old Testament, but John and other people in that era would have been familiar with many of these writings, and they might have assumed varying levels of truth or authority in them. And in fact, there might have been actual truth in these books, actual prophetic words uh, that were not in Scripture that were being fulfilled by Jesus. And so it is possible that what John the Baptist has in mind here when he says the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the, away the sin of the world, he could be talking about a conquering Lamb who comes in judgment and eradicates sin in his victory. He might not be talking about a temple sacrifice paying for sin. Okay, and so uh, I'm, I'm not going to take you to all of those extra canonical uh, bits of writing. And we, of course, we don't have everything that John might have been familiar with. Uh, we are going to take a peek at one of them a little bit later today, uh, the Testament of Levi, that doesn't have to do with the concrete lamb. But I do want to sort of bring us back to this idea that um, 
All of these things that we think about when we hear the Lamb of God, uh, we think about because we're looking back on things that Jesus did later on in time uh, that were written in our New Testament, and the things that John and his hearers would have been thinking about and would have had access to would have been an entirely different set of materials. And so it's a bit presumptuous uh, for us to say, oh, here's what he meant and here's what people would have understood uh, because we don't hear it in the same mindset as his original audience. Furthermore, I also want to point out when we talk about prophecy coming from places other than the Bible, you say, well, is, is that fair? You know, does that, does that work? Um, we, you will notice that later on in the book of John, when we get there, that John records things where Caiaphas, uh, who was a high priest, uh, made a prophetic utterance. He didn't realize he was doing it, uh, and he was an enemy of Jesus, and where Pilate says something that turns out to be far more true than Pilate understood. And so it is possible that even if John the Baptist doesn't doesn't comprehend this idea of a Passover lamb when he says the Lamb of God, uh, it is entirely possible that God intended for him to say it, and he said it without knowing what it meant. And I think there's some indicators of that in the New Testament where it talks about uh, prophets who looked who looked eagerly into these things, trying to figure out what the Spirit of God was saying when he spoke through them. Because sometimes, as God, as God would do it, he has us say things that we don't understand the full import of them as they're being said. And so, it's somewhat similar to the question of the red jacket. Well, what's up with the red jacket? Well, I had the red jacket because when I was buying a jacket, um, I let Thorin help me pick out the color, and he really liked red, and so I got the red one. Uh, if I'd had my, if I'd asked my wife which jacket to get, probably I would have gotten the more uh, subtle muted color that she would have preferred. Um, why am I wearing it today? Well, I'm also wearing it today because it's starting to get cold out, and uh, Lisa likes it colder in the house than I do, and I want to be warm, right? And so there are multiple different things going on here, and sometimes in Scripture when we read things, there's what was originally intended uh, by the person saying it, and then also I believe there's what is intended by God as he moved that person to say that, okay? And, and often, and you might even find this uh, in your own relationship with God, where the Spirit of God moves you to say or to do something, and you don't understand the full depth of it, but as you walk in obedience to the Spirit, it can have a profound impact on other people. Uh, just yesterday, in fact, a friend handed me a little penny to hold on to and, uh, and explain sort of the significance of it. And uh, what she didn't know at the time is that that very morning, not even two hours previously, I had been praying to God about something, and her giving me that penny and telling me that story was the exact answer to prayer that I needed. Right? She didn't know she was doing that. She just wanted to encourage me and bless me in some way. I assume she's responding to the Spirit. She didn't understand it, but God was indeed at work. Okay, So that's a lot about this sort of um, presuppositions that we have, which is going to get into this next thing that I want to talk about. So what else did John say about Jesus? He said, after me uh, comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And so the question is, what you know, what is John talking about? Well, in that culture, the idea was if you were older or if you came first, you were more honorable. You had precedence over the one who came later. And so there was this honor for 
elders that they had back then that we don't really get, we don't understand. It's not a, an American cultural thing. But there was this idea that those who came first were greater. And John says, there's going to be a guy, right, who comes after me. And so culturally, socially, the expectation is the one who comes after John is lesser than John. Uh, but John says that's not the case. He said, after me comes a man who ranks before me or who is before me. And John says, so there's going to be a guy who comes after me who's actually ahead of me in the food chain, if you will, in the authority chain. And then he explains why that is. And he says, because he was before me. Now, when we hear that, we have just read the prologue to John 1, haven't we? And what did we read in verse 1? We read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what God was, the Word was. And so we read that, and we automatically think, oh, John is referring to the fact that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and what God was, the Word was. Uh, and, and we fill in that blank, but John the Baptist didn't write John 1.1, and he never read it, and he didn't know it was coming, and he maybe, he probably did not have that in mind. And so the question is, is John making a statement about the pre-existence of Jesus, that before Jesus became human, that he existed, or is John referring to something else? And if you bring with you your Christian doctrine that you learned in Sunday school growing up, you would say, oh, clearly John is referring to the pre-existence of Jesus. But that's not necessarily true. And one of the things we're trying to do with the study of John is recognize when we're bringing our ideas already formed with us and sort of interpreting the scriptures to reinforce or to support what we already thought, you know, and believed to be true versus saying, what does the text itself say? And so there is a couple other ways of explaining this. Uh, one that I read that I found entirely dissatisfactory was this idea that John is basically saying um, he is, uh, the after me comes the guy who ranks before me because he actually ranks before me. And so in his, in his understanding of this, he tries to explain this away, because this particular commentary doesn't believe in the pre-existence of Jesus prior to the Incarnation. Uh, and so he said, well, John's basically just repeating himself. I think that's a terrible explanation. However, you might look at this in a different way, and you might, you might have John saying this, after me, chronologically, so after me, chronologically, is going to come a guy who he ranks before me, he's more important than me, he is ahead of me, he is above me, because he was before me, and you might read that before me as a statement of logical purpose and intent. So here's what I mean by that, okay? As we read to the next part, John says, I did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So, what John is telling us with that statement is he says, there was somebody that God was sending to Israel that needed to be recognized. He needed to be revealed to Israel. And because this person, who's the real deal, who's the real promise, who's the real hope, who's the real point, because he needed to be revealed, God then chose me to start baptizing with water so that he could be revealed. So what John the Baptist is saying is he is saying, my purpose in baptizing is secondary to the purpose 
who, which comes first. That is the purpose of Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist could be saying, essentially, not chronologically speaking, but logically speaking, he might say God's first intent is to send Jesus Christ, and then in a desire to reveal Jesus Christ to Israel, then I was sent, you know, secondarily just to be a witness to the one whose purpose is primary. And so, John might be saying that the one who is coming after me is more worthy because my purpose actually is derivative. It comes after his purpose, right? And so that might be one possible way to explain it. So, you know, you might, you might get in, I don't know if you'll ever get in an argument with somebody who says that Jesus didn't exist prior to his birth. Uh, it's not super common in Christian circles, but if you did, you just said like, well, but John 1.1 1, 1, uh, says he was first, and then John the Baptist says that he came before him, and so clearly Jesus pre-existed his birth because John the Baptist was born, and then Jesus was born later, and therefore game, set, match. And you might think that you have a, a solid, irrefutable argument, but the fact of the matter comes is that there are other possible ways of interpreting this, and so let's not get too aggressively ambitious of saying this leaves no doubt, because there is room for somebody who is convinced of a different way of looking at this uh, to interpret this that isn't illogical. Okay, so uh, I, I mentioned that we were going to talk about this later because this was repeated in John 1 verse 15, uh, that John, the, the gospel writer, John said, you know, refers to Jesus and says this is the one that John the Baptist was talking about. And so, if we recognize that, that leads a little bit more weight to this idea, of course, that is the prologue to the Gospel of John is written, and the, the Gospel writer is drawing emphasis to this statement about John the Baptist saying, the one who comes after me was before me. Uh, that, le that lends weight, if you will, to the argument that, yes, indeed, the point of the Gospel writer in including this is that Jesus existed before he was born as a human being, okay? So this might be one of those cases where John the Baptist said something and meant one thing, but what was going on was multifaceted, and that God, by his Spirit, was inspiring to say, to have John say something that was, was deeper and bigger than John the Baptist even understood. Okay, so let's move on, though, because I don't want to get hung up there forever. Uh, it's, it's an interesting debate. Ultimately, there's no, I would say, conclusive solution at this point, uh, just uh, a couple different options for how to interpret this. But I do want to point out what John has to say here next. So John bore witness. John is a, uh, a witness. He is testifying, as, as somebody might go to court and say, this is this is what I saw. This is what I know to be true. John bears witness. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And then he repeats, I myself did not know him. Uh, and then he says something else. So I'm just going to pause right here on this question, because now it's the second time you'll see where he says, I myself did not know him in verse 31 and in verse 33. Now, if you're familiar with your Gospels, you'll know that John the Baptist was actually a cousin uh, to Jesus. And so he's, he's related to him. There's a good probability that John the Baptist knew Jesus personally. And if that's the case, then why would John the Baptist say, I myself did not know him? And what's going on here is that John the Baptist is now testifying to Jesus being the one chosen by God on whom the Spirit remains, right? And so John is testifying about the unique role that Jesus plays. 
And John the Baptist did not know that Jesus was going to play that role until something happened, which is explained in the next couple of verses. And so uh, John the Baptist might say, I, I, you know, I knew him as a person, but I did not know him as the Messiah, as the Christ, until something happened. So I think that's what's going on here. This statement also can help us when we're trying to sort out. Perhaps you've heard, if you've uh, talked to some skeptics, uh, people have said things like, well, why do, you, why do you have just the books in your Bible? Why did Christians get rid of the Gospel of Thomas and these other, you know, ancient writings about Jesus that tell other things about Jesus? Like, why, why, don't, you, why don't you accept those as true and why do you only choose the Bible? And the answer to that is very nuanced, uh, but one of the things that we notice about these others, many of these other Gospels is some of them have stories of, of Jesus doing miraculous things as a child, right? There are these, these fanciful imaginations of, okay, if Jesus had this power to do all kinds of incredible things, what would have happened when he was a kid, right? And, and, and so in these, in these Gospels, you get this, uh, these Gospels, uh, you 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 get this picture of Jesus as like this, this miraculous working toddler and, and small child walking around. But when you read the, the Gospels that are actually in our Bible, a couple things jump out. Number one, John the Baptist did not expect Jesus to be this miracle working guy. He knew him and he did not know him as the Christ. Number two, uh, in, during his earthly ministry, Jesus' own brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. And, and we're told this quite directly. And, and so the question then is, if Jesus growing up all his life was as a little kid was doing these miracles, uh, then certainly John the Baptist and his siblings would have had some much greater expectations of Jesus. But that he, that he didn't evidently do these things, that both of those are sort of have to come to belief in Jesus Christ, should be evidence to us that the stories recounted in these other so-called gospels are not legitimate true stories, that they didn't actually happen. They're not consistent with the picture of Jesus that we get in the gospels. And that was one among many other reasons, right, why they're not included in your Bible. So we're going to talk about the Testament of Levi because it may or may not have things in it that are true. Uh, and, and the question is, you know, can we do that? And the answer is, well, yes, you can be familiar with these kind of things, but you, you approach them in sort of this critical capacity of saying, are there things that line up or are there reasons that these that these writings uh, demonstrate to us why they're generally or wholly or only partially unreliable? Okay, so you have uh, John the Baptist saying, I didn't know Jesus, and then he tells us how he knows who Jesus is. And here's what he says. He said, he who sent me to baptize with water, uh, and he who sent me is a reference to God. And we know this because in John 1, 6, um, the, the gospel writer John says, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. I'll just look that up here for you. So, in John 1, 6, which we saw earlier, I said, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear, the, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So, we're told that John the Baptist was sent from God uh, in order to bear witness about the light, who is Jesus. And so, John the Baptist says, The one who sent me to baptize with water, right? And what was the purpose of him baptizing with water? so that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. 
So this is consistent, right? What John the Evangelist, writing the gospel, tells us about John the Baptist is consistent with what John the Baptist says about himself. And so the one who sent John the Baptist to baptize, that is God, he said to John, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then he affirms, I have seen this, and I have borne witness that this is, that Jesus is the Son of God. And there's a footnote that it possibly says, the chosen one of God. So, uh, John the Baptist says, I saw that the one the Spirit descended and remained on is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, a couple comments here. Uh, number one, this tells us that God spoke to John the Baptist. And, and, and we might say, well, how did that happen? You know, did he, did he have a dream or a vision? Did he hear an audible voice? Um, did somebody, you know, walk up to him in the street and says, God says, you know, this to you? We don't know. But John the Baptist is very clear that God has communicated this to him directly. And that's a pretty significant statement because John is saying, here's what God told me what would happen, and then it happened. And so, in essence, that serves as God's testimony about who Jesus is. Okay, so uh, the, the promise then is that John would see some the Spirit descend on someone and remain on them. Now, John John's Gospel, the book that we're studying, does not record the account of Jesus' baptism. The other Gospels do, and they tell us that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, and it remained on him. And that is the point in Jesus' life in which the miracles start to happen according to the Gospels. So, if you're keeping score at home, you will know, now that we've talked about this, that Jesus did not, most probably, do miracles during his childhood, during his early days of his life, as he was growing in wisdom and favor with God and man. He's not doing miraculous things. And then, when he's baptized, the Spirit descends on him and remains on him, and that's when the miracles start. And John the Baptist tells us that God promised, when, when John the Baptist saw this happen, that he would know that was the person who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then, John the Baptist makes this, uh, this additional statement, right? He says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God, or this is the Chosen One. And we'll talk about the significance of that here in a minute, but I want you to point something out, okay? So, what is the testimony about God the Father regarding Jesus? The testimony of God the Father regarding Jesus to John the Baptist is, understand this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, okay? So, what God wanted John the Baptist to know was not the statement, and Jesus is the one who will bring the Gentiles in to the kingdom, right? He didn't say, John, I want you to know that uh, when the Spirit descends and remains, that this is the one who is going to die on a cross and rise on the third day. The message that God wanted John to understand is that, John, understand, when you see the Spirit descend and remain on somebody, that's the guy who is going to baptize others in the Holy Spirit. So, if God saw it, 
as vitally important to make this statement about who Jesus Christ is, then I think we as Christians, even today, ought to consider that this is a vitally important thing for us to know and to believe about Jesus Christ, that he is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, that he is the one who gives us, who sort of immerses us and connects us with the Holy Spirit. There are many days uh, in which you will run into people claiming to be Christians. There are many places where you'll find people who teach basically that the Holy Spirit uh, doesn't do much work today. He's, he's kind of this like promise of things yet to come, but he's not really active and that his job isn't significant or important. But the, the thing that God told John the Baptist to know about Jesus is he is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And why? Because the Spirit remains on him. So we are going to see references to the Spirit show up in the Gospel of John because this is significant and this is important. And I would say if you're a believer in, and if you're being taught uh, to sort of discount or underappreciate the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life today, I would say you are missing one of the most important things about Jesus himself was it was this incredible promise that Jesus would be the one who would give the Holy Spirit. And there are many implications of this that we have yet uh, to work out. Uh, and so uh, one of them I want to, to look at real quick here. In Isaiah 42, uh, we have this prophecy about Isaiah, about Jesus, about the Messiah. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then Isaiah goes on to tell us a little bit more. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So we have this big promise about Jesus, and you'll notice these statements. Behold my servant, whom I have my chosen, in whom my soul delights, and I have put my spirit upon him. So God, who's speaking here, says a few things about this Messiah. Number one, he says he has put his spirit upon him. What was the testimony at Jesus' baptism? That the spirit descended upon Jesus and remained. So there's a fulfillment there, right? He says, he is the one in whom my soul delights. There is testimony recorded in the Gospels of God literally speaking from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, right? There's another fulfillment there. And then he says, behold, my servant, my chosen. So that's going to bring us back into our text here. Verse 34, John the Baptist says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God or this is the chosen one of God. And the reason we have this footnote, it says some manuscripts say the chosen one. We've talked about this before. Uh, our copies of the original the original texts that were written, we don't have the originals. We have copies of them, copies that were made. And somewhere along the line, some of these copies got changed to say one thing, and some copies said a different thing. And sometimes it's not always obvious and clear when we're trying to figure out well, what the original said. It's not always obvious. And so there are some manuscripts here that say that John 1.34 should say that John the Baptist bears witness that this is the Son of God. And others uh, have this idea that 
uh, other other people say, well, no, if you look at the manuscripts, it seems more reasonable to conclude that the original said this is the chosen one of God. And we, you know, we can argue about this. There's no definitive way of settling that debate unless we find the original uh, Gospel of John, which uh, very likely was destroyed somewhere over the years. Uh, but the question is, uh, is there significance either way? Well, on the one hand, Jesus is repeatedly called the Son of God. And so we're not going to end up with a bizarre, weird doctrine uh, if we take this to if we, if we believe the original was said the Son of God and we were wrong, okay? Jesus is the Son of God. The, the Gospel of John says it all the time. Uh, the New Testament is replete with references to Jesus as the Son of God. Um, and so that's not in question. If it says he's the chosen one of God, then that would increase our connection between this prophecy and the prophecy of Isaiah 42. So that is, if John the Baptist is saying, I have seen the Spirit remain on this one, and so therefore I bear witness that he is the chosen one of God, then in essence you would have John the Baptist saying, and, and I'm telling you, Jesus is the one promised in Isaiah 42. And we might weigh this option more heavily because earlier we heard John the Baptist say of himself, I am the voice of one calling out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. And, and that shows up in Isaiah chapter 40. So Isaiah is clearly very, uh, very cognizant of Isaiah 40. He's familiar with it. He knows it. And he knows that it was written about him. And then, so it seems to make sense that he would also know Isaiah 42 is this statement about the Messiah, the one who is to become uh, and, he, and the one who is described as having the Spirit of God rest on him and being the one chosen by God. And so it's possible that John is saying, remember, I said I'm the guy from Isaiah 40. I'm that voice. And Jesus is the one from Isaiah 42. So that would be a pretty uh, beautiful, I think, um, statement by John of how this scripture was fulfilled. And we know that one of the things that John likes to do in his gospel is tell us how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. So here then you have uh, John 1. Now I want to take you, I, pr I promise to take you to the Testament of Levi, and so I have to explain that a little bit. Uh, there is a collection of 12 testaments that it's an ancient work. We don't know exactly when it was written, and it claims to be uh, words from the 12 sons of Israel. Um, and, and so if this is the case, right, it's possible that the Jews wrote this uh, 200 100 to 200 years before Christ or even earlier, that it was possibly passed down. There's no clarity exactly on that. Some people claim that these, these statements were uh, written by Christians in 100 to 200 years after Jesus in order to reinforce sort of their idea that Jesus was the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. We don't know. Um, but I wanted to, to, to read one of them to you, the Testament of Levi, a couple of verses from this, just because I want to, you to sort of see what's going on here. And to remind you, as, I, as we started out here, that the Jews of Jesus' day, they had ideas in their heads 
that weren't just based on what we would call scripture, the Old Testament, right? They learned a lot of things. They heard a lot of things. There was a lot of ideas circulating in different regions and among different people. Just like you heard things in church that your pastor maybe said last week that aren't exactly scripture. They're sort of related to scripture. There is interpretation of scripture. They may or may not be true, but now you have that idea stuck in your head and it's going to rattle around and it's going to affect the way you understand things. And uh, hopefully after today, when you read something like this, now you'll have ideas in your head about what it means because you heard them from me. Uh, and, and, you know, and that should hopefully adjust your thinking more towards an accurate representation of Scripture if I'm right. Of course, if I'm wrong, then those ideas stuck in your head could make it harder for you to understand Scripture. So here's what Levi said, the Testament of Levi, uh, chapter 18. Uh, verses 2 through 14 says this, Then shall the Lord raise up a new priest, and to him all the words of the Lord shall be revealed, and he shall execute a righteous judgment upon the earth for a multitude of days. And his star shall arise in heaven as a king, lighting up the light of knowledge as the sun the day, and he shall be magnified in the world. He shall shine forth as the sun on the earth and shall remove all darkness from under heaven, and there shall be peace in all the earth. The heavens shall exalt in his days, and the earth shall be glad, and the clouds shall rejoice, and the knowledge of the Lord shall be poured forth upon the earth as the water of the seas, and the angels of the glory of the presence of the Lord shall be glad in him. And the heavens shall be opened, and from the temple of glory shall come upon him sanctification with the Father's voice as from Abraham to Isaac. And the glory of the Most High shall be uttered over him, and the spirit of understanding and sanctification shall rest upon him. So this spirit of understanding and sanctification, that would be the Holy Spirit, shall rest upon him. For he shall give the majesty of the Lord to his sons in truth forevermore, and there shall none succeed him for all generations forever. And in his priesthood the Gentiles shall be multiplied in knowledge upon the earth, and enlightened through the grace of the Lord. In his priesthood shall sin come to an end, and the lawless shall cease to do evil, and the just shall rest in him. And he shall open the gates of paradise, and shall remove the threatening sword against Adam. And he shall give to the saints to eat from the tree of life, and the spirit of holiness shall be on them." Okay, so the spirit that was the spirit of sanctification, that is of holiness, will be on him, and he shall give to his saints, and the spirit of holiness shall be on them. And Beliar shall be bound by him, and he shall give power to his children to tread upon the evil spirits. And the Lord shall rejoice in his children and be well pleased in his beloved ones forever. And then shall Abraham and Isaac and Jacob exalt, and I will be glad, and all the saints shall clothe themselves with joy. So, when you read that, you have these indications. You're like, oh, yes, that's what Jesus did, right? He brought righteousness and justice. He caused his children to trample upon the snakes and the serpents, the evil spirits, right? Uh, he, the spirit of holiness rests on him, and he gives that to his children. And in him, the Gentiles come into the kingdom. And so, if you read that, uh, there's this temptation of some scholars to say, well, that so matches Christian doctrine that it had to have been written by Christians, and then just sort of backdated, if you will, to be attributed to people well before Jesus, so that we'll, we'll feel that those things were prophesied and fulfilled. And so you have that sort of claim being made by some people. There were some fragments found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that predate the time of Christ that are related to the Testament of Levi, that uh, they aren't exact quotations, but they're close. And so some people think that 
that that was, you know, fragments of like the original and that it does indeed predate Christ. But the reality is we don't know. Uh, and some people say that the early Christians had access to those scraps uh, or to the, the documents those scraps were from and that they sort of updated and reinterpreted and added to them to make up their own testament of Levi. We don't know. Um, but I did find it interesting to, to point that out, that there are these connections that we see between Christ uh, that were circulating in the early church that we are simply not familiar with. Whether that document was written in 100 AD or 100 years before Jesus, we may never know. Uh, but what you probably didn't know prior to today is that things like that were commonplace and they circulated in the church and they circulated um, there were documents similar to this that had a religious tone that were that were circulated among the Jews, and their rabbis had teachings and things that people would have been familiar with and would have understood that would have shaped their view of the world. Nobody in the first century uh, had this sort of modern evangelical idea about um, about God that we share. It was different. The influences on them, the literature they were familiar with, the things that people were talking about, they were different. And so we have to be very careful when we study our scriptures not to assume just because we think of something that they would have thought of that, right? If you lived 200, you know, in 200 AD and you heard something about uh, Jesus that connected to the Testament of Levi, you might have thought in your head like, oh, that's just like the Testament of Levi. And it would have had a different impact on you, right? Now, if you were a pastor and you knew that and you were preaching a sermon about Jesus, you might have referred to, you might have quoted the Testament of Levi because you knew people were familiar with it and it would touch a sort of an emotional cognitive cord with them and it would reinforce what you were saying. But we, being so far removed from those things, we don't understand they're out there. And so all of that is just an encouragement to say, like, don't be careful. Like, we don't assume just because I had a reaction, just because I thought something that I, when I read a text that that's what it originally meant. And of course, we've been there before uh, where we started today, which is this idea that sometimes because God's Spirit rested upon Jesus and because God because Jesus was the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, he gave us the Holy Spirit. That means that God's Spirit is in us as Christians. And so that means that when John the Baptist was speaking, when Jesus was speaking, when the disciples were speaking, it is also entirely possible, and we should expect it from time to time, that people say things under the influence of the Holy Spirit that they, while they're saying them, they understand one bit of it. But God is communicating something deeper and wider and more profound. And I think this particularly comes to apply when we talk about the gift of prophecy. So, I believe this gift still exists, that God by his Spirit still speaks through people to other people, to encourage them, to build them up, sometimes to warn them, um, or to call them to repentance. Uh, and and if, if you operate in that role, if you have a prophetic gift, then God may give you something to say, and you may say it thinking it means one thing. But the reality is, is that the message not being for me for you doesn't mean doesn't have to mean what you think it means, because the message is for the recipient that you're supposed to deliver it to. And so if you have this gift, you can 
you can sort of back up from this pressure of having to understand what everything means and have to be able to explain everything to somebody else. And you can just simply say, here's what I believe the, that the Spirit wants me to say to you. And so I'm going to explain it. And if, if God really did intend it for you, it should make sense. He can help you work it out by his Spirit. And so take that. Uh, but I'm just going to say what I think the Spirit wants me to say. Okay, so there's this huge promise. Jesus, of course, has this role as the Lamb of God. Whether we understand all of that nuance or not, that's who he was. And Jesus was also the one who God promised to John the Baptist would give the Holy Spirit. And so there's a huge promise, even at the very beginning of the ministry, that Jesus was not just about forgiving sins, but he was about uh, restoring us into the fellowship with God himself by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So I hope that you will go out today now as God's children in Jesus Christ and as bearers of the Holy Spirit and that you will walk in step with that Spirit and enjoy God's goodness. God bless you. We will see you again here soon. Mm -hmm.